Welcome to Leading the Next Generation with Tim Elmore. I am your co-host, Andrew McPeak, and our mission here at Growing Leaders is to empower the emerging generations with skills to lead in real life. And Tim, often we underestimate what those emerging generations are capable of, and this is reminding me of a story that I found out, actually I heard from you for the very first time a few months ago, of one, one of a student that accomplished something that maybe our listeners don't know he was actually the one who accomplished it. Yeah, I didn't know it until I read this. It's, so it's a true story, listeners. Uh, Robert Heft was in high school in 1958. So he would have been uh, just before the baby boomer generation began. Okay. But that year, he was sitting in history class, probably bored. Uh, when I shouldn't say that. History teachers, please forgive me. But, <laughs> but there he was sitting there, and the teacher gave an assignment. He said, based on what we discussed about American history, I want you to come up with a project, and I'll give you a grade for your project based on our, you know, this section of the textbook. Yeah. Well, Robert goes home and starts dreaming up what he can do for this project, and he remembers thinking, I just heard that America is going to add two more states to the Union. Alaska and Hawaii, which were added the next year, 1959. And so he decided to take the current flag of the time, which had 48 stars, and add two stars and design it in such a way that it... Everything fit and all that. Yeah, it could be, at least for a project, the new American flag. Yeah. So he comes up with it, and he is shocked when he turns it in, feeling very proud of his work. He gets a B-. minus. Huh. So he asks his teacher, sir, please, why, you know? And the teacher goes... That didn't look like our flag. That's, that didn't even look like a flag we're going to. And he goes, no, 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 sir. I've, I've been reading, and, and uh, you know, we're going to add two more states next year. And the teacher literally said, well, Robert, when, I get a, when there's an act of Congress and I get a note from President Eisenhower, then we'll you know, change your grade. Well, that was enough to motivate Robert. <laughs> so he starts sending letters to the White House. He starts actually making phone calls, long-distance calls, which cost a lot, so he couldn't make a bunch. He sent more letters and calls. But he actually gets the attention of President Dwight Eisenhower. And Eisenhower, um, you know, when he got it, he didn't write to Robert, but he said, yeah, we are going to, you know. And he saw the design. He sent him the design. And uh, lo and behold, to make a long story short, Congress does, you know, add Alaska and Hawaii. They actually use a teenager's design. The current American flag was designed by a high school student. I love it. Not by Betsy Ross Jr., a high school student. And so... When Robert saw that, you know, came through, there he was in, you know, uh, every town USA. He, he asked for a note from the White House, and he gets one, and he takes it into a teacher. And true to his word, the teacher gave an A+. Plus I love when it. A, when an act of Congress took place, and he actually designed the current American flag. So you give them a challenge, they'll that's go right. after it. Absolutely. You know, it reminds me, kids want to do something that's very important and almost impossible. Yeah. And that's what Robert did that day. Absolutely. And that's what I think our students today want to do. But sometimes we have such low expectations, we just hope to make it through this course remotely. Or we just hope that kids pass the test virtually. And uh, so this is all, this conversation is all about how do we help these kids really retain and get it yeah. while they're learning a lot of time virtually. Oftentimes we don't set high expectations, especially yeah. in a season like this where we assume, well, they're learning in a virtual classroom, yeah. most of them. So it must be this massive obstacle. And so we don't need to work that hard. We just need to get through the day, yeah. right? Yeah. But I think research is showing that the most innovative educators yes. are the ones that are getting through, even in this era of virtual classrooms. They are. So it, it's, it's juxtaposed against the traditional pedagogy that we usually use in a classroom. So ever since the 19th century, 
uh, and maybe before that, but I know since Horace Mann, we have used this lecture, drill, memorization, and test. So it's memorizing a lot of content, dates, generals, battles, and then regurgitating it on an examination. Yes. You and I both did that in school. Um, you and I both know that's not the best way to change a life. Yeah. You might remember it for a, an exam in December, but you forget it two weeks later. Absolutely. So I'm not against memorization. It is important, but it's not the best way to engage or help a student remember curriculum. So um, we're going to talk about two big ideas, Andrew, and I want you to kind of guide me through this, but yeah. I've got some research and some big ideas that I think might just be helpful and very practical for our listeners. Okay. Today. Well, I'd like for you to introduce them to us because these two ideas are not maybe necessarily revolutionary, right, right. but what they are, I think, are two things that you may think of independently and what you yeah. don't realize is when you combine them together, it unlocks a potential in this generation that maybe uh, you might not get to otherwise. Yeah. In fact, let me just give you, let me cast a vision. It may, if you're, let's just say you're teaching a freshman course in high school. If you engage in this uh, pedagogy, you may find your students remember this well into their adult life. Yes. And they, and they could, could see you in 20 years and say, I remember when you taught X, Y, Z. Yep. So, this is how our brain remembers. This uh, took quite a bit of time for me to really look at the brain. I'm not a neuroscientist, but there's so much available to ordinary people like you and I. Yeah, thank you, Internet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So as I'm looking at the brain, it, it, it appeared to me like our brain remembers in two specific ways, and it's two different parts of our brain that are engaged in that. So the tools we need to use to engage those two parts of the brain are these. Number one, imagery. We are visual people. And number two, emotion. Mm. We are emotional people. Okay? We like to think we're logical, and we are on certain days. But especially when it comes to memory, we're talking emotions. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. So how do you remember something? Well, you make it emotional. So I'd love to take a few minutes and just banter with you, Andrew. Please. How do we use imagery and emotion, put them together to almost guarantee, I hate to say that, but they're going to retain this because yeah. it wasn't just taught in blah, 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 blah. Remember this for the, for the final. Absolutely. Okay? All right. So first of all, our memories file information differently depending on the part of the brain we used, as I just mentioned. The cerebral cortex, that upper and it's called the upper part of the brain, but it's actually upper and front part of our brain. Okay. That's the cortex, um, is the largest site of neurointegration uh, in the central nervous system. And it plays a key role in attention, perception, awareness, thought, language, and memory. And this cortex remembers information primarily through visuals. So if you think about it, in fact, right now, when I say dog or cat or any word like that, your brain, if you're a normal person, thinks in pictures. You yes. picture a cat, not the letters C-A-T. You picture a dog, not the letters D-O-G. Yes. So since we remember that way, why have we not been using this better? We keep doing the same processes. And I was taught to teach in the old-fashioned way. But imagery absolutely engages. Now, do you need to do more than show an image? Of course you do. Of course, There's yeah. loads of dates they need to remember, perhaps, for history class. But I am just telling you, research by Peter Houts, uh, who is a PhD, by the way, tells, people, uh, tells us that people prefer pictographs over words for instruction because they remember them better. That's just what we just said. The more we can harness the power of an image the better our chances are of getting through to our listener. I love the research 3M did, Andrew. Yes, I remember uh, this. We, we both have talked about this. 3M's research reveals the brain processes images, get this, 60,000 times faster than text, mm. So meaning words and words and more words. 
So um, now, I think the problem is we don't think pictures or images are very scholarly or they're not academic, they're not rigorous. We like that word rigor in higher ed. But I'm telling you, what if we, what if we used an image to, to um, anchor the big idea? Yes. And then we move to the other. But it's got this coat hanger to put the coat on that's, that's this image that helps them remember all. It's all not that you're stuff. not sharing the informational part. It's that the informational part is anchored or leveraged or encapsulated or even just begun with an image, right? Yeah, using exactly a picture. Right. So 3M, that same study I just shared on 3M, the, the same, same study shows that visual aids teachers, listen to me, or parents, listen to me, improve learning by 400%. Crazy. So um, we all like to hear a very clear, simple talk or lecture, but... We love it when there's something we can see, not just hear. Absolutely. Um, Socrates was the one who said, this, uh, the soul does not think without a picture. So um, that's one way to One do element, it, okay? one side, and it's yeah. The, and it's, uh, it's the cortex. The amygdala, on the other hand, which is our lower part of our brain, the amygdala is taken from a Latin root meaning almond. It's a small almond-like looking uh, part of our brain, a membrane mm-hmm. under, un- underneath this uh, cortex. Uh, it remembers experiences through emotion, mm. not visuals. In fact, the amygdala's primary function is to signal when you need to fight or flight. Mm. So it's the one scanning the landscape. Is it safe here? Is it not safe? Yeah, what's the, the way, situation? Yeah. Our team has talked about this. Is this a safe place to be candid yeah. you know, and transparent? So our amygdala's always looking, always looking. And by the way, I think it's designed in us as it should have way back centuries and centuries ago. There might have been wild animals around. You had no house. And so you needed that amygdala yeah, to be Yeah, because you don't need to think about danger. You just need to That's run right. away from danger. Yes. Yeah. But here's what, here's what we didn't know. If, let's say you're living centuries ago, that lion, that bobcat or whatever that's out there in the woods, and you're right there vulnerable, you'll never forget that bobcat because your amygdala remembers emotionally. It was an emotional moment. It gets locked in. All kinds of, exactly. So here's what I'm thinking. When you're communicators listening to me right now, what if you could combine, combine the image and something that was emotional, which I think is a narrative, a story, yeah. put them together, suddenly... That history lesson, that science lesson, that literature lesson is crazy cool yeah. and very much retained um, in, in, an, in an amazing way. Um, so bottom line, if the message sparks any level of emotion, we're more likely to remember it, especially when we discuss it, okay? So we don't just feel, we actually talk about how we feel. According to um, author John Turney, I loved reading John Turney this past summer, um, studies show as a general rule that when we remember uh, that we remember emotionally charged events better than, than boring ones. That's, Which seems yeah, yeah, logical. Makes sense, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Research also indicates that we retain information that engages us at an emotional level. So um, I already jumped to the bottom line, but what if we could better harness an image and an emotion, uh, an image and a story that, uh, that makes us emotional? And I'm not saying they're, they're crying in the classroom, but something that's more than just a cognitive change. It's an emotional connection yes. to the story. Yes. Okay? Yeah. So that's what that's what we're we're talking and about. And this is especially challenging, I think. It was already difficult in the classroom because of the way we were taught, the expectations yeah. in the classroom. Students are not expecting to walk in and see pictures and stories yeah. and yeah. all those kinds of things. Uh, it was already challenging. Yeah. Now we're in COVID-19, we're mm-hmm. in quarantine. Many of the teachers, even listening right now, are doing all of this in a virtual classroom. Yeah. And so the question, I think, almost begs itself, how in the world do we do this in that context? Now. Yeah. Well, I recently spoke to a group of students who confirmed it's a need. Mm. So um, it was a group of them, um, and 
They were all learning remotely, at least part of the time, if not all of the time. And each of them, Andrew, had a negative story of boredom yeah. sitting in front of a screen with a teacher, sometimes that didn't even understand the technology like they did, but certainly didn't, wasn't really up for. And by the way, teachers, if you're listening, you are my heroes. We, we love you. We feel with you trying to teach both remotely and in person, much of you, much of the time. It's just hard. But your students are thinking like what you're thinking. They're thinking online learning is a trade-off at best, and um, there's, a, there's a downside to the experience, and it's just engaging them and helping them remember is harder now than ever. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Now, but that it doesn't have to be that way, right? There are um, there are elements to this technology that we can use that could actually make a really big difference. Could really help. Yeah, no doubt about it. So obviously, we need to leverage more than uh, pictures and emotions to teach difficult subjects like trigonometry or medieval history or whatever. But these are tools that can anchor. So let me share just five really practical ideas. Yeah, how we can that, at least get started. On yeah, this. to get to get started on this. I'm sure you can. Think better thoughts than I do, but maybe scribble these down, listeners, or make mental notes of your driving. Don't scribble. But here's five ideas to get started. Number one, obviously, your PowerPoint slides or anything you're doing up on the screen should always include imagery as well as information as a rule. Absolutely. The studies show that we teachers are horrible at this. We have all this copy filling the screen. It's too much. It's like, you know, it's... It's nothing like what kids look at when they're not in school. Absolutely. So too many words, not enough images. And great communicators do something really important, especially in the 21st century. If you're using a metaphor or if you're telling a story, your slide should have no words on it whatsoever. Yes. Yeah. Memorize that information yeah. or put it in your presenter notes, yeah. whatever you need to do. Put it on a piece of paper and hold it separately. Don't distract from yes. the power of that image with yes. words. Yeah, yeah, especially paragraphs. Absolutely. Uh, number two, uh, videos that cover a related issue in your class and stir emotion can be leveraged. Absolutely. YouTube is full of hundreds of thousands of videos. In fact, I think it's tens of thousands that are uploaded every hour across That's the world. That's right. So you all know this. You do this. I'm just saying don't underestimate the power of a quick video that might elicit emotion. Uh, it makes them feel, not just think. Yes. Okay? Love it. Number three, use language that inspires emotions, not just cognition, as you instruct the class. So I had a sophomore history teacher, world history. Uh, my teacher f made me fall in love with history because even though we, we were talking about World War II, which seemed to have nothing to do with my life, he told stories about these people that lived during that time, the Jewish people in Germany, the, the, the generals, the, the, the presidents, and the, you know, uh, just the leaders during that time. But they were stories. And it made me want to say, when did that happen? 1944? You know, okay, now I got the date because I've got a context that yes. was launched by a picture. So don't underestimate the power of using language that inspires emotions. I love that. Number four, within your class subject, ask students to write out an inciting memory associated with it. Huh. So maybe you're asking them. You come up with the emotion now. So, um, and, and I think that's good because now it's going to be relevant because they're writing it down. It's not you imposing something. It's you exposing an assignment to them, and now they're coming up with it themselves. I love it. So let them do the right. And then number five, the last one here, identify a photograph that represents your big idea and refer to it throughout your class. Mm. So Andrew, one example of this, it's just an example, but uh, way back about 20 years ago, I decided images are way too important to leave it to just a story in the midst of a talk or a lecture or whatever it was yeah. I was teaching. So I began to create these this curriculum that we now know as Habitudes. Yes. Okay? Uh, 
And listeners, it's not a sales pitch, it's, it's an illustration. I began to find as I was talking to students and I was sharing what I thought was very important content, they would remember the story I told, not the rest of my, conf, conf, you know, my content. They remember the image I showed on the screen, not you know, the rest of my content. And I thought, well, why not just make it an ancillary part of it or an addendum? Why not make it the big idea? Yeah. So this habitude image became the anchor to everything I was saying, just like I talked about earlier. Yeah. And you and I both have known. I know students that are now well into their career, 10 years into their career, that will see me in a Target store and go, I still remember that iceberg. Yeah. I still remember, remember that rivers and floods. I still remember that drivers and passengers. And it was these are photographs that were just helpful to them. It's funny because we run into this all the time when we're training teachers on how to use habitudes is they'll ask, where do I put in the lesson the image? And yeah. I say, the image is the, the lesson, lesson. you right. know? Yeah. It's a just, it's kind of warps your way of thinking. It does. But make the picture the thing. Yeah. Make the That's metaphor right. the thing. Yeah. And they'll actually remember it. That's right. And then you can toss in other things. I remember a student, well after she graduated, she was in her mid-20s, um, told me that she had recently gone through um, a surgery and was in the hospital. I said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. She goes, actually, it's a great experience. I said, the surgery was a great experience. She said, no, what happened around it? She said, I was in the hospital bed and I was um, unconscious, but I guess I was in that state where I was kind of mostly unconscious but could still hear what the doctors and my mother were saying around. And my mother started talking about how she was just worn out, trying to keep up with all the other kids at home but coming down to visit me and just worn out. And she said, they told me, the doctor and my mom told me later, I sat up in bed and said, Mom, you're being a starving baker. You need to feed yourself before you feed everybody. And she said, I just laid back down and went back to sleep. And I, of course, listeners, the starving baker is one of our images, and it's, it's a cool photograph. But she remembered it in her subconscious, subconscious state in that. a hospital bed. That's how deeply these images get in. Yeah. So we could bore you with story after story after story. But the point is, how could you, listener? better leverage the image and the emotion to better do what you're trying to do right now. When we use only words, we're using the Gutenberg world. When we use images and emotions, we're using the Google world, which yeah. they live in every day of their lives. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, that's the big idea. I love it. I love it. Uh, all of these things are things that we we should and could be applying to our lessons. We've been talking. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Leaders smarter than us have been talking about the power of images and yes, emotion for yes, right. for years. But I think the challenge that, that we often experience is just we don't want to take the time or make the yeah. time to step away from old practices yeah. that we're used to. I wrote this curriculum. I designed yeah. this presentation, yep. all of those things. And, and often we don't even realize the ways in which sticking to our uh, our old ways of doing things are actually harming ourselves, yeah. and also our students. Yeah. And I think that's an important lesson to remember in the midst of this. It really is. In fact, I'd love to close with a story that illustrates exactly what you just said. Yeah, um, please do. I don't want to step away from my lesson plans that I put together. By the way, in 2001, you know, or whatever, let's yeah. be honest, teachers, we keep that old lesson that seemed to work. It's a new generation of kids, and they're going, I can tell this is old. Yeah. So um, it's a powerful story from, from history. It's a true story. Uh, so way back in, in 1881, something tragic happened. Um, President James Garfield had just been elected that year, and he was going. Uh, he was walking through a train station uh, and was planning on getting on a train and going up to join his family uh, in New York. And a crazy man with a pistol, Charles Guiteau, stepped out and shot him twice in an assassination attempt. 
So we all know that James Garfield died while in office. It was an assassination attempt. But Andrew, we now know that it really wasn't the bullets that killed President Garfield. It was the doctor that treated him later, Crazy. believe it or not. Crazy. So here's the story. Dr. D. Willard Bliss uh, kind of was the self-assigned doctor. He cared for the president, but he kind of signed himself, I'm going to care for this patient. I'm going to make sure and nurse him back to health. Because the, the bullets really weren't, it didn't go through the heart or the lungs. It wasn't. He, he could have survived He it. could have survived and would have survived had it not been for the treatment of Dr. Bliss. So in short, Dr. Bliss starts poking around, by the way, with dirty fingers. We didn't know about germs yet. He starts poking around the body inside, trying to find, he's cutting him open and trying to look. Well, can you imagine someone going through your body with dirty hands? Yeah. And, oh my gosh, I just, and you know, it's just crazy. And there was no, um, you know, we didn't have uh, Novocaine or didn't have any type of uh, local anesthesia yet. So this is all very painful. Yeah. It didn't go on for days, went on for weeks, actually went on for months. Oh my gosh. So uh, Dr. Bliss got so fanatical about only he should touch all the other doctors in the room. He pushed them away and said, don't touch this man. All the other nurses, he pushed them away. Don't touch this man. I don't want, I just, I don't want anybody else. Along the way, as he's still probing the body, Dr. Blitz gets a, gets a visit from Alexander Graham Bell. We know that name. Yeah, we do. So he has invented a metal detector and says, you know, this metal detector might just help us find the bullet without having to probe with our fingers. But Bliss said, well, okay, but I'm only going to let you look at this side of the body, which was the wrong side. So he had guesstimated the wrong place, so the metal detector didn't do any good. And then Joseph Lister stopped in. Ever heard of Listerine? Indeed I have. He had come up with this theory on germs and said, I just want to encourage you to wash your hands before you dig through you know, President Garfield's body. Oh, that sounded like hogwash to Dr. Bliss. <laughs> I know this sounds crazy, but the germs and the metal detector, both would, have, both would have solved the problem. He could have probed for months, but at least been clean. Yeah. Well, as fate would have it, President Garfield dies. And um, when it comes out, well, well Charles Gatell later got um, charged with, uh, with assassination, and he did go to prison. In fact, I think he was, he was executed. But it wasn't really him, it was Dr. Bliss, the very man that was assigned to help him. Do you hear me, listeners? The very one that was trying to help him ended up hindering the very process that would make him who he was supposed to be. In fact, one of the journalists who discovered this true story during that day said, our doctor gives a new meaning to ignorance is bliss. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just terrible. It's crazy. So my application, I'll just be short about this. I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. But when I first heard that story, I thought, oh, my gosh, have I been guilty of doing my old, doing my old lesson plans, using my old ways, convinced that I'm right and nobody else should touch this. Nobody can give me any advice. Nobody hand me a metal detector. I'm, I'm, good, to, I'm good on my own. And I'm actually ruining my chances at reaching this student I'm trying to reach. Mm, that's so powerful and an important, important uh, tool and uh, story for us to remember. Imagery and emotion, yeah. that's what they need. Yeah. So could we, should we begin to adopt even simple practices mm. to include those things in our lessons? In yeah. fact, if we want to be academic and we want them to remember yeah. using those two tools may yep. be the best, th best things that we have at our disposal. Well, we've mentioned a couple times throughout this about habitudes. That's one of the tools that we have. In fact, uh, Tim 
wrote the first Habitudes almost 20 years ago now, yeah. and they have since then um, continued to develop as a tool that uses imagery and emotion to connect with students through pictures, metaphors, stories that we tell, um, conversations that we have. They're a really great tool. If you'd be interested in learning more about it, head on over to growingleaders.com, click on Habitudes. I really just want to commend this as a tool to you that might help you bridge the gap uh, if there is missing imagery and emotion in your lesson plans, spending five minutes on a habitude might actually make a, a huge difference. Well, as always, if you would rate this podcast that gets the word out about what we're doing here. In fact, if you felt it, find it uh, helpful, just go ahead and share it with somebody. We'd, we'd encourage you to do that as well. Um, as always, if you want to connect with us on social media, we love connecting with you there. We are at Growing Leaders and at Tim Elmore, pretty much everywhere you are. And then lastly, if you've got ideas for this podcast, things you want us to talk about, people you'd like for us to interview, shoot us an email. It's podcast at growingleaders.com. We love getting those emails from you. Tim, thank you so much for leading us through this vitally important uh, practice that we should all begin including in our lessons. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next time.